This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Nature's Mentor, Wilderness Rights and Tracking with Darren Silver. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is our closing episode for this first season of Life Worlds. And I just want to take a second to thank you all so much for how you've interacted with the show and for your comments and feedback. It's been really, really wonderful to hear from you. You've informed a lot of my direction for where I think the second season can take us. So stay tuned and you will hear from me soon when that will be. When I was designing the series, I thought it would be a fitting closure to end with a conversation about nature connection mentorship and rites of passage. You've heard from so many voices in previous episodes on how they've learned to listen deeply to the land and voices around them. Today, to end this season, we're going to get into the how and how you can embark on this journey in a very intimate and personal way. Life worlding starts in the body. It starts with core skills that used to be central to pretty much all human cultures across time. These are ways of being in the body and in the land, sometimes in solitude for many days on end. Strangely, this should be basic stuff. And yet our modern world has rendered this knowledge practically extinct, or at the least, paints it all as rather exotic or primitive. There was a time in which the land spoke vividly to each and every one of us. Every snap twig on a trail, every odor on the breeze, every utterance from a bird's beak, they would all be harboring a message, guiding you through the undulations of a savanna or a steep canyon. The stakes being nothing else but your survival, your family's meal for the week, your escape from the jaws of a tooth predator. Imagine the heightened electric body of yours that would be pulsing through that land. Our homo sapien brains, our neuronal pathways, jolted and fused and tenderly sprouted new branches every time our eyes scanned the complexity of a living world, trying to make sense of its miraculous expressions. This is a world I long to come home to, again and again and again. Now, I have to admit to you that a decade ago, bird language, solos in the land, tracking animal footprints, stooping down excitedly to inspect scat, uh, that is animal poop, even myth-telling, these things were just not part of my world. And now, they are the very things that keep me alive and keep me strong. I went on my first vision quest last summer, caught between thunderstorms and dust storms, alone, fasting in the land, caked in mud without a tent, howling and throwing boulders off cliff tops in the dazzling ochre New Mexico desert. Yeah, something visceral and untranslatable happened to me out there. When I peeled away distractions and shed away domestication, life became crystal clear. 
there was a sheer simplicity and poetic resonance to everything. No boundary between myself and world. Darren Silver is going to explain what quests like these entail and why our culture so desperately needs them. Darren is a rite of passage guide, a nature-connected coach, wilderness crafter, and ceremonialist. For two decades, he's been working with teenagers and adults in initiatory practice, rituals, and wilderness skills. Over now to Darren. What a rite of passage looks like today is providing a ritual opportunity for people to step from one stage of life to the next. And oftentimes, to be able to step to the next stage of life, the next chapter, we have to resolve, we have to address, we have to spend time with any unfinished business of the previous chapter or the chapter that we're currently in. So that's often what a rite of passage looks like today. It is most potent for me doing this in the context of the wilderness because the natural world is always mirroring back to us or reflecting back to us what is. These cottonwoods are always going to behave as cottonwoods, as is the choke cherry and the flicker that just landed in the cottonwood. But us humans, <laughs> we're highly capable and spend quite a bit of time living in a vacuum of who we think we are, but not actually who we are. So immersing ourselves in an environment that is constantly reflecting what is allows who we are to naturally come to the surface. It's like drawn out of us. And the layers fall off. The layers that stand between us and our true nature begin to be revealed. It's not a one-and-done thing. It's a lifelong journey. What happens to a society when it doesn't have these markers across different transition periods? Do you think that that is an accurate way of describing our moment in time? Yeah. It's such a great question. I am currently reading a book called The Sibling Society by Robert Bly. The ideas I'm going to share don't directly come from that book, but for listeners, The Sibling Society discusses kind of this uninitiated time that we're in, where we're a bunch of adolescents or brothers and sisters walking around. So in my world, the consequence of going through a rite of passage, of giving ourself you know, up to the greater story of life is that we realize that the purpose of living is not to get what we want, that that's not actually the purpose of living. Well, to say what it is, isn't the brightest idea. However, what we're being invited to is to participate in life as a generative force. And so what we have is a lot of young people that are still believing that it's about getting what we want. And by young people, I mean developmentally, just getting what we want, the earth, that life is always for our needs and wants without really having the capacity to give and generate, um, create generative force in life. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. What is it that happens out there in the land? Maybe you can describe what a vision quest is 
what happens out there in the land? What's the process? There are these three kind of doors and stages. And why do people return changed? I don't think I've met one person who's come back from a vision fast or a vision quest or the different names for it without being a little bit shattered and humbled. I personally think that it's essential. But what happens out there and how does it developmentally shift people into maybe a more wise version of themselves? There's three stages that were really articulated by Arnold Van Gennep, uh, anthropologist. It's severance, threshold, or liminality, and incorporation. And so the way that I guide quests, it's somewhere between eight and 10 days long. And the first two, three days are really devoted to connecting to nature. Severance is about separating ourselves from what is familiar internally and externally, putting ourselves in a completely new environment, developing new routines that begin to move us into a place of having a different perspective or perception on ourselves and in life. You know, there's this question that fascinates me is how does the earth or nature communicate to me or communicate to you? And how do you communicate to the earth in a way that is just as real, as trusted, as my conversation with you right now. That is a muscle that has to be developed in those first two or three days. At least begin to see the flicker of that black tip of a lion's tail that we can hang on to, you know, and carry through to the four days and four nights of fasting alone on the land. That in itself is a threshold for so many people, whether it's being alone on the land whether it's fasting, whether it's the sense of exposure, like what about the elements? What about the heat or the humidity or you know, the mosquitoes or the tiger snakes or all of it? That time of threshold or the liminal stage in anthropological terms is the between and betwixt. It's the conscious experimentation of one's intention. So in those first couple of days of severance, it's really the clarification of why one is going out there. Spent a lot of time, me personally, with the call. Like, what called you out there? Because the lineage that I work with inside the call is always the vision. And so you go out there and you begin to experiment, have a conscious experimentation with one's intent in that threshold period. And then after four days and four nights, you return. And the questions that drive me then are, what happened for you out there and how are you going to take this home? What is so challenging about our time and kind of makes it an incomplete rites of passage is that in times of old, it was very clear what we were returning into, what we were being initiated into. And we don't have that today. Oftentimes, it's heartbreaking. And every wilderness guide or transformational teacher in some sort is always like, yeah, incorporation, like how do we take this home? It's always really hard. And it's like, it always will be because we live in a transition time and we don't have a genuine culture. So it's like, I had this magnificent experience and where does it fit into the world? And that's when we go, uh oh, well, now I need to learn a little bit about systems design and what is culture and, you know, all these new theories so I can have some context or container of which the vision I received can fit into. So anybody that does this work of a quest or transformational learning, we have a real tall order ahead of us to bring what we received back into the world. 
because the world doesn't want it. <laughs> There's a direct confrontation with what's happening when we bring the consciousness of the earth. We have to have really strong swords to do that. It's interesting. I could phrase the next part as a question or as my own story, because the question is, what happens out there on the land for people to come back and not even know how to readapt to culture? I think for those who have maybe gone to, I don't know, Burning Man for the first time, or they've gone into the jungle and sat with some plant medicine or gone through the death of a loved one, like all of these events and occurrences make it incredibly difficult sometimes to reintegrate into your old shape. And there's a particular aspect of the vision quest. And as you said, it's the resensitization to a world that is alive and all of the forces and spirits within it that can be so absolutely um, world-changing for people. And I can imagine people listening to this, they're like, ah, four days, four nights outdoors. Like I've been camping, like it's no big deal. Or yeah, maybe you love trees a little bit more. Like what else is happening out there? What is it about that solitary enmeshment in the land that means that across most cultures that I know, human beings have been sending out their young, their middle-aged and their old into the land for this because otherwise they're not a full human. And our society, our Western society, I should really add, is one of the only ones that doesn't even factor that in as a societal importance. So as you say, there's the severance piece and then there's the incorporation, but this between and betwixt, that phase, I can share some of my own story, but I'd rather ask it as a question, what is it about that? Hmm. What is it about you and the land? Yeah, the word that comes up for me is participation. Something happens in that four-day period for most people where all of a sudden we realize we are part of life. We begin to chip away, as Charles Eisenstein would say, the story of separation. So we become part of, we participate in these incredible cycles. I mean, I'm a fan of simple one-liners. Okay, it's about participation. And for me, in my world, if we can find the simple, then it opens up into the complex. I mean, one of the biggest things that happen out there is we find how courageous we really are. And we're in a time where so many people want more information about things that we already know. We don't need any more information. What we need is courage. And we need people that can go out there and surrender themselves to life. And so there's a big thing of courage that happens out there. To participate in life is a deeply courageous act. That's a few things I want to say. And, and if you have another burning question, you can ask it. But I think there's more there that I can share too. There is always this incredible communication that is happening between species, between the cottonwood and the flicker, between the choke cherry and the mouse. There is this dynamic communication that is taking place that is not seen with the eyes that we have participating in modernity. And so going out there after day one and day two, all of a sudden, the true nature of our seeing emerges. And we realize that everything is profoundly interconnected. And our every movement, our 
every gesture, our prayers, our words have this incredible ripple in this tapestry of life. That becomes crystal clear out there. Science has proven it with the butterfly effect. You know, the flap of a butterfly wing has an impact on hurricanes. It's like, what I'm doing is I'm stretching out what I mean by participation. We all of a sudden realize the true impact of our very existence. And it's not coming as a concept. It's coming as this precious existence of like each moment is so fecund, so rich, so participatory, dynamic, that all of a sudden we have to incarnate. (laughs) We have to go, oh my God, like my presence is here. And again, that requires courage. I mean, on the courage piece, before jumping into my next question, when I went out into the land, I mean, we spoke about this before I went, I have a kind of very awestruck fear of mountain lions. And for the four or five days I was out there alone, I was like, I want to be eaten tonight, I want to be eaten. (laughs) Mountain lion never showed up. But just to sleep without a tent, out in the middle of the desert for four days, exposed to everything that could be or is, you kind of come back into the quote-unquote human domesticated world. You're like, I can take on anything if I can do that. Yeah, and I think the life that you do communicate with when you're out there, the conversation that can happen, you carry that with you for the rest of your life. Like I have never walked in a landscape in the same way again, knowing how I can listen to other creatures and species and weather patterns and dynamics to bring it down to something tangible. Is there a story that you could share? Uh, Maybe it's something that happened to you recently or something that can make this come alive for people who are listening in terms of what that communication could be or what that interconnection can be perceived as. Yeah, it was guiding a quest. This is years ago and it was in Utah and there was a young man that came down from the quest. By young, I mean 19. And one of the biggest pieces he came down with is he goes, I realized that around the planet at sunrise, there is this great wave of bird song that is all about beauty that is going across the planet. And that if I can just wake up with that song every day, then I will be participating in life. You know, it's that simple. But it leveled this guy. It was the meeting of every other thing he came out there to try to meet, you know, his friends and his family and everything else. It was like all of a sudden he had ground and orientation of if I can just start every day with this cacophony of sound, of song, of beauty that's always going around the planet, you know as the eyelid of the world is opening. That story came up for me since we've been talking. And there's just so many. I mean, there's one guy, this is maybe a year ago. He came back after his four days and four nights, and it looked like he had crawled out of the darkest, deepest, most thorny place. I mean, he looked like he crawled out of hell. And when I guide, I check in spiritually, let's say. I check in with everybody. And every time I checked in with him, I was like, man, he is on the edge of wanting to leave. He is ready. And he came back. And this particular character had done, let's say, 40 or 50 
ayahuasca ceremonies. And he came back and he was like, by far, this is the hardest thing I have ever done. It was more challenging than all of those previous ceremonies combined. And he started to tell his story. And again, he has like this flavor that he had done it all wrong. And after he shared his story, it was like what he did out there was reenact ritually every trauma that he had experienced in his life in the most creative, painful ways I could ever imagine. This is a man who his parents were addicts to the point of them administering him to psychiatric hospitals for four days at a time so they could go on binges. And he would be put in straitjackets and drugged up himself. He ritually went through all of those experiences. And he came back and it, after he shared, he's putting his head down going, oh my God, I totally failed. And you know, my job as a guide was to step in and say, oh no, no, you just finally encountered all of those stories in a way that you could transform them into what makes you the courageous man, the man that has all these gifts for the young ones that are struggling. The same quest, another person is out there. And the whole time, I mean, this guy came down and was like, when the moon came up, I had a slow dance with the moon for hours at a time. Across the desert moonlight, I danced with the moon. Meanwhile, Thorny guy is staring at this guy. He's like, you fucker. I was being poked through the backbones of hell and you're like dancing with the moon. Oh man, the human experience. Exactly. So it's so varied. I, I, I love this thing that you said before that we almost don't have a culture to come back to. That is such a sad statement. There's always some kind of culture happening, obviously, because life is happening. How do these kinds of experiences create a different culture? Where are we trying to go from and towards? Well, how I define culture is the reflection of place being reflected back. In that case, we're kind of screwing it up. <laughs> That's your definition. We're not quite there. Yeah. Like there is a reason of certain patterns of beadwork in the cradles of the Arapaho people, the Arapaho people living in the area that I live in. There is a reason for why certain stories are told at certain times in certain places. It was all this reflection. The way the people existed reflected back what the place was singing to them. So I don't think we live in a culture. We live in an industrial society. Again, that is about getting what we want for our own sake. When we want it. When we want it. Forget the seasonality. If you're talking about being a reflection of a place... Yeah and that certain songs correspond to certain seasons, then yes, what we want when we want, yeah. which isn't how nature functions. Nature's like, wait for the spring, wait for the buds, like can't have it all right now. Yeah. Another way that I sometimes work with culture is like the context in which an organism or organisms can thrive. Like I think about kombucha or yogurt or, you know, sauerkraut. It's like it's creating a context on which and organism or organisms can thrive. Both of those ways that I work with the word culture, like we don't live in it. <laughs> I'm struck that this is actually a really interesting time to talk about myth because you work a lot with myth. You've written a beautiful myth that I had the chance of listening to. And myth is different to story, I, I believe. They're not completely distinct, but what's the role of myth 
in culture, in the way that you speak about in terms of reflecting a place. Yeah, that's such a beautiful bridge. To be in relationship with mythology in a way that keeps the story alive is the same way that we're in relationship with the place that keeps the place alive. The mythologies aren't about finding one answer to what it means. In other words, being in relationship with place isn't about how that place directly just serves me. (laughs) There's more to the mythos as there is to the place that is a living relationship. How does a myth reflect a place? Is there maybe an example that you could give? Like, how are myth and place connected? I'm not going to answer your question directly. (laughs) Trickster. By the very (laughs) spirit of mythos. We have places within us that if not maintained, if not recognized, wither. And so mythologies help us to travel the landscapes of our interior. And I'm not speaking purely psychologically here, like actually travel to places and landscapes within us. And it provides a bridge that allows those places to then be in conversation with places externally. There's this incredible myth that you shared with me and that I recently heard Martin Shaw speak about, and I, I obviously love a lot of the ways that he recounts some of these myths, which is you know, the tale of the Hamless Maiden. She wasn't a princess yet, but she had the makings of it. You could kind of tell the beginning of the story. And through sorcery and a bad spirit and a series of unfortunate events. I'm not going to tell the whole myth, but she basically has to clamber through this wild forest, overgrown forest, without her hands, bleeding stumps, encounters all sorts of disasters, then emerges on the other side, this incredible life takes place. And then she has to go back into this wild thicket of a forest. And I just remember when I was hearing the story being like, holy shit, I am that maiden right now trying to figure my way through this freaking forest with hands cut off, bleeding all over the place, not knowing where I'm going, just trying to find my like wood sisters. And I identified myself so profoundly with who she was at a point in the myth. And I'm sure in two years, I would identify with her at another point in the myth. And I think that seeing ourselves in these characters, in these stories, enables us to tap into a part of our own being that there's maybe no place for it in like my day-to-day life. But I hear this myth and I identify and I'm like, okay, that's where I'm at. And then I can maybe go into the forest, the physical forest around my home and recreate that somehow and recreate that challenge. And I think that the more that you can identify all aspects of the human experience, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful that is inside of each of us, if we can see it in a story, we can see it in ourselves. And therefore when it occurs in the world, in any form, it's familiar to us. Like, there's that. I identify it. I see it. I know you. And it could come in the form of an animal and it could come in the form of a car that looks strange. But like, we start to see these patterns. And maybe there's also an element of what you're describing is that myth allows us to see patterns. And those patterns are inside of ourselves and they're inside of the landscape. And it's almost like the braille code that you can touch to figure out where you might be going. Yeah. You know, what really strikes me about the handless maiden is she goes out into the wilderness without her hands. In other words, hers, our ability to shape life, to touch life. For her, for us, when we go out into the wilderness, sometimes it is utterly 
about us being shaped. We can't use our hands to manipulate the environment for better or for worse. There is a complete surrendering. You know, when I look at crops today, they not only through hundreds and thousands of years of domestication, but really the last 50 or 60 years of monocropping, not only through that, but also through genetic modification, there isn't that moment where the spirit of the plants are going back into the wild and returning to culture, meaning we're highly susceptible. The plants are, we are, to disease. You know, that story in particular teaches us something about going out and returning brings life back to the human realm. How does the act of going out and you have this kind of epic story and you live your own inner myth and you kind of come back into your world and you want to tell everybody and how does that not become a deeply individualistic story? You know, and I think both of us have encountered people who come back from some epiphanic roller coaster high. They've got it figured out. How do you counter hyper individualism when someone comes back from such a peak story or a peak experience? Is there a way of molding someone so they're actually, okay, I'm of service, I'm humbled, I'm participatory? Is there a way of guiding or can it just go both ways and we just have to trust? You know, it's a very delicate process. My training comes from several different places, training to guide wilderness rites of passage or the vision quest. And the primary one is the tracker school, Tom Brown's tracker school. At 20 is where my life completely changed. When I first studied with him, it continues today as recently as a month ago. It also is in Native American rites and rituals that come from the place where I live. That is not something I bring into these wilderness rites of passage experiences that I guide, culturally speaking. I cannot speak for and bring forth people being initiated into a particular cultural lineage. However, with both those lineages, it is emphasized that what I'm going out there to do isn't entirely about me. And it's something that is often missed in modern day wilderness rites of passages that are guided today is that we are to some degree marooned to our own interior psychological process to some degree. I'm making a sweeping claim because I'm wanting to swing the pendulum back a little bit more that on one level, it doesn't have a damn thing to do with us. And I encountered that the hard way, my first time going on quests and being told it actually really isn't about you. It requires, how I would say, the way of the coyote to bring people to realize that it's not all about them. And the way that I speak about it is the way it was spoken about with me, with Tom Brown. I mean, to this day, it feels like he was looking directly at me, but he was speaking to the whole class. And he basically said, are you willing to give up your dreams to follow your vision? You know, this is nearly two decades ago. I was 20 years old. I was a college student, and it's only until recently that I think I understand a little bit about what he meant of the difference between our dreams and our visions, is that a dream really only involves me, and a vision has to do with my people and the earth. And so I try to bring that 
to the people that I guide while simultaneously meeting the young man who has to encounter that he was sent to a psychiatric ward so his parents could shoot up. You know, I have to meet both. It's the terror of our times that we have to find both. It's like we're at ground zero. We don't have culture anymore. We have threads of culture that exist around the world that have been destroyed. And for me, culture was born out of the place. So we just have to get real humble and go back to listening to the song line of the river, of the juniper, of the cottonwood, like that simple. And that's a new kind of information and requires a whole lot more of courage. Going off of what you said and this very tricky and subtle difference between dream and vision, because we're told to follow our dreams, right? Mm -hmm. And one could believe that a dream is a vision. Oh, but you know, I, if I have this startup, then I'm going to benefit like 2 billion lives. And, but there's still this contour of ego inside of it. And I think that it's when the ego is surrendered that the vision might emerge. And it is only in relationship to that larger story, which is the more than human stories, all of those other tales that are unfolding, that we can start to determine this is a very narrow dream that is actually about me, even though I've been telling myself it's about all these other things. And the vision emerges in humble relationship with all of those other forms of life. You've sort of trained and done all of these different ways of getting in touch with the land. You carve, you make things. There's like a deep physicality to your being. Where do people start? Like I can imagine that, you know, people might say, wow, this all sounds great. How the hell do I get started? Do I have to take 10 days out to go to a vision quest? Are there simple ways that people can begin to be embodied, to listen to the land around them? Like what is the most practical advice that you could give any human being? And I know that you work a lot with teenagers, which I absolutely love. So young kids, older kids, <laughs> older kids, aka adults, because we're all just older kids. What are ways that we can get a little bit closer, aside from a quest, aside from going into the land, which I truly wish for every single human being? Yeah. There's two things I'll share. One is called the fox walk. And the fox walk is walking at the pace of one step every three seconds. And just to be clear, it's not like one step, one, two, three, one step, one, two, three, but it's one fluid motion where our feet meet the ground every three seconds in a fluid motion while incorporating wide-angle vision. Wide-angle vision, a way to practice it is like looking on the landscape, finding a fixed point like a tree, and then allowing our vision to get wider and wider to a point where I can see the tips of my fingers wiggling in my periphery. So to fox walk in wide-angle vision for five or 10 minutes will put us into the heartbeat and rhythm of the earth. The second thing is finding a sit spot, a place nearby where you can sit in nature. Both of those come from the tracker school. And so it's a place that you can commit. Like I can go there three days a week. I can go there once a week. I can go there at sunrise and sunset every day. And it's a spot in nature where you can go to observe nature, to track, to pray, to look inward, to give thanks. In college, I would practice presentations out there, call in all the trees and say, please listen. The way I say it is trees are the greatest bullshit detectors. 
they would lean in and take the BS out of my presentation so I could speak with passion and speak from my heart. So the sit spot and the fox walk are, are very simple. And even if you live in a city, there are open spaces. Unless you're on the moon, we're not cut off. Even if you're walking down the street in the city, there's often little trees poking out of the sidewalk or big trees sometimes. Like the spirit of nature is always there, always here. And in the sit spot, you're just taking in everything that you see. You're just observing. You're observing and observing. And it's kind of a regular ritualized pattern of observance where you're sitting and seeing how a place changes over time. Yeah. Throughout seasons. Absolutely. So on the sit spot, it's allowing your senses to be roads of information. I mean, what does the creek, I have a creek here, like what does the creek actually smell like? And to get so enraptured in that, what is the music of the creek? What's the voice? How do you prepare people for these subtle, and I'm sure that there's something similar that you do in that severance process before Vision Quest, the two or three days where it's about learning how to connect with nature Mm -hmm. and and working with teenagers and probably teenagers who have grown up in cities or maybe in challenging homes. How do you begin to sensitize them to receive that? And they have their phone clanging and they have (laughs) a brain that's already hardwired for, you know, quick, fast attention, it must be difficult. Or do you find that it's intuitive? Teenagers can see through us. When they see someone, and I'm I'm not claiming that I'm this way all the time, but when they encounter someone who's real, that's really bringing something real, then they're usually always intrigued. Hmm. Speaking of the trees being BS detectors, teenagers are impeccable BS detectors. That's true. (laughs) And there's a story I worked with in my master's thesis, uh, The Firebird, where there's this young lad and he's got a bow on his back and he's riding a horse and, you know, he's a hunter and can live by dawn and dusk and be by fires in the evening by himself. And he comes upon a firebird feather and he goes down to pick up this feather of the firebird and his horse talks and says, wait a minute. If you pick up that feather, you will come to know the meaning of trouble and the meaning of fear. Do not pick up that feather. Of course, what does he do? He picks up the damn feather. And so there's an element of beautiful danger that we need to guide young people into. They love that. Can there be ways that they can encounter the the danger, the beauty of life? and pick up the feather. That's what happens with youth. And and just to go back to the sit spot, it's like this thought that's lingering in my mind, is that a vision born out of nature will die if we don't continue to go to nature. And so the sit spot is one of the most important elements to the way that I guide Quest. Because if we don't continue to maintain that relationship, then the vision born out of nature will get really far away from us. I just guided a four-day, you could call it a rite of passage journey that was about being initiated into the body. Beautiful process of bringing in the consciousness of the earth and wildness into the body so we can undomesticate our movements. It was through dance, right? It was through dance. Yeah, yeah. It was very similar. Like If you don't continue to dance, then you won't find information that's in the body. Have you ever felt like your body became more animal, like you found yourself in a setting or you saw a bird or I don't know, like, have you ever experienced in yourself some kind of metamorphosis or just through observing another creature? 
has your own body changed? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I accessed it a lot through dance, but also the fox walk changes my whole posture, the whole way my feet meet the ground, completely changes the attunement of my senses. But what really comes up for me is I grew up hunting, and I still hunt, and that has changed. Is that legal where you live? <laughs> it's absolutely legal. Yeah. Good, good, good. Just checking. <laughs> um, trying to think if I've broken the law in that way. You know, sometimes there's those moments when we have to pick up the feather, even though we're told not to. But I haven't with hunting. Yeah. What have you done it with? Uh, wait, wait, wait. This is good. What have you done it with? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like I do it on the daily, you know? Hunting has changed me. Participating in that, having that direct contact where I have to be incredibly still, incredibly quiet, stalk an animal and move, not quite stalk, but move in a way across the land where I am doing my best to have as little impact as possible. All of those elements have changed my perception, my awareness, the way I'm in relationship with my body. I mean, not many people have had the opportunity to butcher an animal, to know what do intestines actually look like, you know, from something other than a frog or a mouse in biology class. And I don't know if everybody got that opportunity. I remember when I was going through high school, like, for some reason, I never really got that class. It never really happened. I think for a lot of people, like, cracking the egg in the morning into the pan is like the closest they'll ever get to butchering some kind of fetus, I guess you could call it in a grim kind of way. Yeah, the act of taking another life. And life takes life yeah, in all nature. And I think you just spoke about another rite of passage there, which is butchering, but using the whole animal, the skin, the hide. I know that you then use that hide to make your drums and you use that bones for your tools. You ask about breaking rules. My partner and I did this workshop, you know, the initiation into the body, but it took place in a monastic community. There was people from the public that came, but a lot of the participants were lay monks. You can't cook meat. It's entirely vegan. And after the workshop, we stayed a few days and ended up because of storms actually having to stay there for a few days longer. But we went out. We went out driving. Were you telling me that you were stuck in a storm with a bunch of dancing monks? That just sounds like the best week ever. <laughs> it was so good. And I don't know if it's my Persian heritage or what, but a lot of people are way into cold plunging. Like I've done it, but it's not my thing. And those dancing monks got me in Vermont winter to go into break 12 inches of ice and sit in the pond nearly every day which was awesome. And I'm, I'm grateful for them. Anyway, so we drive out and I'm driving back and I come upon a roadkill, a roadkill hawk, actually. I want to go back and teach them how to honor this animal. And that's breaking the law, by the way, a bird of prey. Uh, you can't take birds of prey. You can't take roadkill? Uh, it's about the feathers and I don't know what they're going to do with it. But what I was originally going to say is me bringing in a dead animal into a place that's entirely vegan. <laughs> And saying, let's learn how to be in contact with life and death in this way. And it was a beautiful process. I mean, that is a beautiful way of, quote unquote, breaking the rules. So you took the birds and you guys were all huddled around. And then what happened? Basically, I showed them how to butcher in a way and process it in a way that can be made into ceremonial objects. That won't be for me. That may not even for them. They're very close with the Abenaki and it may be gifted away. But it, more than anything about who it goes to, it's about honoring the life of the bird, not about us. 
It's about honoring. Hey, this thing was was killed by a car. Like, let's honor this. Um, and so sometimes we have to break the rules in that kind of way. I have this image of of you and these monks huddled around this beautiful dead hog, just honoring every dapple on its feather. What, what a scene. Gosh, that's incredible. Yeah, it's really sweet. And, and love that community out there so much. Yeah. Yeah. We're almost to the end of our time. And I'm wondering if there's any further advice you'd like to give people who are listening on how they can get started to their relationship with wilderness. Where can they go? What can they do? Obviously, we'll, we'll point towards you and your work in the show notes and some of these links you mentioned, like Tracker School, and we may have another tracker coming on the show soon. But day-to-day life in cities, are there books, ways of being, apart from those two incredible practices that I do? I do the sit spot. I haven't done the fox walk. How else can people be in touch with this mythic world? Um, I said this earlier, so I want to return to it, is like really spend time with what deeply calls you. Because inside the call lives our vision. And if we follow the call, then it will lead us to that place of participation with life. You know, a call is different than our lust. Hard to tell the difference, but yeah. (laughs) Especially in our times. But we know it. Yes. Uh, One thing that happens on quests often is people, all of them come down with these recipe books of like things they're going to make. And... We know the difference between us going out there thinking about the best enchilada that we can prepare versus, well, I'm really called to teach or I'm really called to give back to the community I grew up in. You know what I mean? So yeah, the sit spot, the fox walk, but really spend some time with where is it that you're called? Can you follow it? Even if it's one hour a week, Yeah, can you follow that call? Even if it's five minutes, we have to start somewhere. You know, doing that can move us in a trajectory that in a year or two years is a completely different place than we were. Yeah. And I want to honor this feeling that I long for every human being to go through some rite of passage in their lifetime, hopefully in a structured ceremonial way with a group of people where they're held and not just out alone in the middle of the stormy waters trying to figure out what the hell is happening. And I long for a society that has been initiated in the ways that we knew how to do. Because that initiation and participation with that larger earth story, as cheesy as it sounds, it has to underpin our transition to a more ecological, sustainable, regenerative society. It's not just through the technologies and smart solutions that also have to be there. There is this piece of like soul severance threshold incorporation. So I, I just, I wish this for everyone. And thank you for coming on and in your incredibly eloquent way, I think giving a little hint of what, what that is and what people can maybe expect out there without being too explicit because you don't need to know what you're getting into, right? It's just, just try it. So thank you so much for sharing these stories. It's been such a gift. Thank you, Alexa. It's so good to talk story with you. That was Darren Silver, enticing us all to become initiates in the wild ways of the earth. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. And as I mentioned earlier, this concludes the first season of the show. Sign up to our email list on our website to stay tuned for when the next season will come out. 
that's it from me, Alexa Firmnish, your host on Life Worlds. I'll miss you and be well until the next time we meet. Thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs>